Hello there, Gary Turner from the Value Through Vulnerability podcast here with episode 63. I'm really excited to introduce you to Michael Gelb, who is author of 16 books, including How to Think Like Da Vinci, and indeed his 17th book coming out in September, co-authored with Raj Sasodia, is The Healing Organization, and one of the main reasons for us contacting and being connected today. What I'm really excited about um, and was really inspired about uh, learning from Michael is that he had a very clear criteria very early in life from when he was born back in 53 that he knew he wanted to do something that would be of service to others to help heal the world. Also, to hear somebody with absolute clarity talking about the fact with all of his experience and working with the organizations and clients that he has that the old paradigm of business is based on an idea that we're all in competition for scarce resources Yet the new paradigm is that we are all connected and we're all in this together. And if we can help each other and look out for one another, we can have an abundance beyond what previous generations could have imagined. This is going to sound a little bit kumbaya for some, but I just totally 100% agree with Michael. I've seen it in my own organization, which you'll hear about in terms of some of the paradigm shift that's occurred there. You know, there is enough for everybody. And I think this comes back for me for the unconditional basic income conversation as well that I spoke to Scott Santons about back on episode 17 of this podcast. You know, there is something going on energetically and consciously, and I'm really excited to see where all of this goes, and indeed looking forward to the healing organization coming out in September. So please do have a listen. Let Michael and I know what you think. We'd love for you to share any quotes or key takeaways that you hear. Um, if anything resonates, this conversation doesn't happen without you, the listener. So I'd be really grateful for any feedback you may be willing to offer to Michael and or myself. Thanks very much. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast that is dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And this afternoon, I am super grateful and very excited to welcome Michael Gelb onto the podcast. He's written 16 books, has had his own company for over 40 years, which I'm really excited to explore. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. Oh, not at all. Thanks for joining me today. As we, uh, as we get going, Michael, would you mind just giving my listeners just a bit of a, a, a more in-depth background? So, you know, why did you start your own business 40 years ago? And uh, what are you up to today? Well, when I graduated with a degree in philosophy in 1973, all the big philosophy companies didn't approach me for a job. So I had to start my own business. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had very clear criteria. I knew I wanted to do something that would be of service to others to help heal the world. I also was very clear that I wanted to do something that I would be passionate about through which I could learn and grow. Mm -hmm. And in those days, I, you know, I was pretty naive and idealistic. I didn't even think about money or I figured I wanted just to be able to survive, but I never had uh, ambitions in regard to uh, generating wealth or anything along those lines. It was just about learning and service and enjoyment. Uh, so back in, in I really thought about going to medical school, but in those days, medical 
education focused on disease and I was interested in health and wellness. You know, they didn't have functional medicine and integrative medicine back then. Uh, I thought of getting my PhD in clinical psychology, but one had to study insanity and neurosis, and I was interested in creativity and full self-expression. And, you know, they didn't have positive psychology, didn't exist yet either. So I pretty much had to make up my own path, and it was circuitous to say the least. I became a professional juggler. I trained for three years as a teacher of the Alexander Technique for developing mind-body coordination and stage presence. I connected up with Tony Buzan, the creator of Mind Mapping, and he invited me to co-lead seminars with him for corporate clients, and that's how I got involved in applying what I knew to helping people in business. And then in 1982, I, actually, I moved to Washington, D.C., because I thought it was the place in the world where I might be able to have the most influence by teaching creative thinking. And obviously, despite my tenure there, there remains a lot of work to be done. But uh, fortunately, I did discover that businesses were really interested, uh, that there were businesses who, who were genuinely devoted to making the world a better place, and they saw that that was just better business, to treat people well, to be honest, to be fair, to provide value, to be kind. And so I was blessed. I, right from the beginning, I was engaged by visionary humanistic leaders. And that's how I, I developed my own business. And, and it's what I still do today. It's amazing. You know, when you think back, when you did start, let's say back in the 70s, 80s, Michael, you know, we're still very much in the throes of this old, call it mechanistic, commander control type structure. Yet you really had that that vision, as you say, that philosophical vision to step into creativity, more humanistic ways of working. Was there anything further back in your history, if I may ask, that really set you up to think that way? Or was, there, was it just your innate? Well, period? no, I think there's a, a complex of things. I mean, I think it was the state of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the disasters of World War II, the Holocaust was all still fairly fresh. I mean, I was born in 1952. That all ended in 1945. Uh, so that was a dominant theme. The world was, I mean, when I was in first and second grade, we had to duck under our desks for uh, air raid drills. And, you know, the notion was that Soviet bombers were going to drop nuclear weapons on our school. <laughs> so, you know, I, and I remember even when I was six or seven years old, I was, I'd say if they drop a nuclear weapon, it doesn't matter if we bend down under our desks, we're going to be vaporized. So, <laughs> you know, I was six years old, but that was pretty obvious to me. Uh, so, you know, I think anybody paying attention would notice that the world was in crisis, that there was lots of suffering, that there was lots of turmoil. And it just, it always seemed to me, uh, and I, I, you know, my mom was a psychologist. Uh, so she, she said to me when I was very young, you know, the human mind uh, is the secret of everything. If you can learn and understand your mind and the minds of others, that's the way to approach life. Uh, so I knew that I knew she was right. And so I got fascinated by the mind. I said, what is it about people's minds 
and the way they think that leads to holocausts and nuclear weaponry and having to have children hide under their desks and how can we change that? And then it occurred to me that learning to think creatively, learning to develop consciousness uh, was really the critical key. So I just became interested in learning all those things and I'm still interested in learning all those things. That's what a wise mother you had to be focusing on that wisdom, that wisdom around the mind. I'm learning at the age of 42 in 2019, literally the last 12 months about that, really. Well, it's, you know, it just, it's, it's, uh, yes, I get, I was really blessed. Uh, my mom was really, she, she still is. She's my mom is 88. Just visited her the other day. We had a fabulous conversation. My dad is 92. They're among the most brilliant, thoughtful, uh, clever people I've ever met. And they're the best, and they remain the best conversationalists and just delightful. No nonsense either. They just cut through everything, uh, but great sense of humor, very loving, uh, wonderful people. So yeah, I, I was really blessed to be initiated uh, from a young age into this path. Beautiful, beautiful. As we, before we get going on to the, your latest book that you've co-written with Raj Sodi, The Healing Organization, I just wanted to ask you, you know, you've written these 16 books, which is fascinating, including you know, How's a Thing Like Da Vinci, which is wonderful. Are there sort of one or two golden threads through your experience to date that keep coming up across all of those myriad of different books? There are sort of a couple of sort of golden threads for you. Um, well, well, one golden thread, yeah, it's a wonderful phrase. And, and one golden thread is to model, to understand, to study, to immerse oneself in the greatest minds, in the greatest characters, the greatest beings, intelligences that have ever manifested uh, uh, in this world, to study them and, and figure out how are they able to be, you know, how is Leonardo able to be so creative? Uh, I mean, I read all his notebooks. He tells us. He gives advice to his students. I just translated it into contemporary language. Uh, Thomas Edison, 1,093 United States patents, created three entirely new industries, changed the world forever. The movies, uh, the recording industry, and the illumination of the planet, all created by, by Edison. So if you're interested in innovation, he's a pretty good guy to study, which I did along with his great-great-great-grandniece, she and I together wrote the book Innovate Like Edison. So the golden thread is in all of these books. I'm pointing over there because all my books are displayed on the bookshelf over there. Uh, and they're all, they're all about a study of excellence, of the manifestation of the best that humanity has to offer, genius and, and inspiration. And the, the healing organization is part of that thread, uh, except instead of just studying uh, the life of a given individual who was a role model for creativity like Leonardo or innovation like Edison, here we're looking at uh, leaders who are helping to heal the world through their businesses, and we're looking at the way those businesses are actually healing the world. And then we're abstracting from these amazingly inspiring stories, lessons that we can all apply if we would like to be part of a more healing organization and create a more, a more healing society. So, so the golden thread continues uh, in the healing organization. 
That's lovely. You know, I've, I've heard you speak to and with, you know, Barry Waymiller, who's an organization I, I follow very, very closely. Um, are they featured within your healing organization? <laughs> yes, they are. They are. Uh, uh, Bob Chapman is, you know, Bob Chapman, uh, uh, who created uh, Barry Waymiller and is just such an incredible visionary. He's, he's one of the prototypes He's one of the people who helped us get the idea of a healing organization, uh, uh, along with Herb Kelleher from Southwest. Uh, uh, these uh, and uh, uh, Bernie uh, uh, Glassman from uh, 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 the uh, the guys who make the brownies in Yonkers. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's so you know th these these characters are true innovators in uh, in the world of business in, in that they fundamentally shifted people's understanding of what the purpose of a business is most people you know yes people today what's the purpose of business people say make money which is absurd uh, but it is the number one answer people will give you that's like saying you know what's the purpose of human life you might say well the purpose of human life is to make red blood cells because you know, without them, we can't survive. And without money, a business can't survive. But to say that money is the purpose of a business is like saying making red blood cells is the purpose of human life. It's obviously ridiculous. You know, the purpose of business, as Raj and I put it forth in the healing organization, is to alleviate suffering and elevate joy to alleviate suffering of which there's way too much in the world and elevate joy of which there isn't yet enough. And those obviously the two go together. So alleviate suffering, elevate joy. That wants to be the purpose of one's endeavor. And it turns out, and Raj has done a lot of the research here, beginning with his benchmark book, Firms of Endearment, that when you do that, when your enterprise consistently alleviates suffering and elevates joy, you will be more profitable. It's, it's really good timing there. So I, within my own work organization, Michael, I, I managed to run a three-year experiment under the radar for 15 international salespeople. And we moved from a more fear-based team culture, whose fault is it, blame, mm -hmm. right to more of a, okay, who wants to step up? Who wants to take ownership? Who wants to challenge the status quo? And we increased sales by 6 million and margin by 2 million over three years. Nothing else changed. Literally nothing else changed. Culture, culture, each strategy for breakfast, as uh, uh, Peter Drucker said. And that it's a, it seems to be a factor of about at least 30% of financial return as a function of just what you're talking about. And so once you, and not to mention the fact that all those people are no doubt happier. Uh, part of why you make more money is uh, turnover goes down. People are more engaged. They're more involved. They bring more of themselves. They're more fulfilled. Uh, they just do a better job. They, they think more creatively. They support one another. Uh, and so it's, but it's intrinsically valuable thing to do is to create this positive environment. Everyone's happier, more fulfilled. Oh, and by the way, you make a lot more money. So once you know that, 
why would you do anything else? Do you know what I mean? It just once you get this, it's, oh, because we're all hypnotized. Everybody's, well, you have to make money. It's all about making money. And there's a limited amount and you have to take it from the other guy. And, you know, the old thing, it's, uh, it's not personal. It's just business, which is a mafia expression. <laughs> okay, it's okay to be unethical. It's okay to be a creep. It's okay to abuse other people because, you know, that's business. No, it's not. That's not business. That's crime. Beautiful. <laughs> Michael, I am so I am so grateful for your energy though. You know, no, but this point is this is the point I want also our listeners to, with this conversation to hear is that that result that I shared of my organization, that was not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is that people were disliking each other, they didn't trust each other. Like who wants to work in that environment? So we right. got we, 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 we had a leader that was prepared to have the courage to take the risk on the experiment. And like you say, it's a no-brainer once someone sees it. Yep. Too many people don't see it yet, Michael. So what's, what, what's your hope and your, what's yours and Raji's hope for the healing organization? Well, the subtitle is Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. So that is our intention and that is our hope. I mean, really, no kidding. You know, we, weren't, we, were, we were working on the subtitle because we wanted it to be really accurate. I said, well, that may not be a, a, a it's necessary to help save the world. I don't know if it's sufficient. It's going to take more than just our book. <laughs> but we want to help. We want to do our part. <laughs> and we do really feel that uh, you know, government is not going to solve our problem. Government is not going to solve global warming, climate change. Government is not going to solve gross inequality. Government is not going to solve uh, uh, poverty and starvation and disease. It's not. Uh, and And Sadly, I don't think nonprofits are going to solve it and foundations and NGOs as wonderful as they are. Uh, no, I think business is going to solve it or not. Uh, but if it's going to be solved, it's going to be when more and more people in business wake up and realize, and this is what's happening. You know, the good news is, this is why you said this is good timing. This is right in the sweet spot of the zeitgeist. I mean, Larry Fink, who runs the biggest investment firm on the planet, puts more money to work in more companies than anybody else. And his annual letter to CEOs this year basically said, you know, you got to start focusing on, 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 on being purpose-driven. We're looking to invest in purpose-driven organizations. Now, big money talks and people are paying attention. He also cited the statistics that for the first time, we have a majority of the younger generation, we call them millennials, the people who are coming into leadership positions, serious leadership positions in major organizations globally, more of these people now believe uh, uh, that the purpose of business should be to help make the world a better place first and only secondarily to generate profit. So, so people are, and, and they're getting this because they have to. In other words, this is not optional. This is not a luxury item. Uh, this is urgent. It's important. We're down to really, if, if this generation doesn't get it, doesn't change the dominant model, the consequences are dire and we're already feeling them. On the other hand, I'm hugely optimistic because and this is where all my other books come in, too. It's why if you think like Leonardo, if you innovate like Edison, if you have a higher purpose, see, all this goes together. 
all of my books are a curriculum for conscious leadership. They're a curriculum for healing leadership. You need to be creative. You need to be innovative. You need to build relationships. You need to build your life energy. These are all the things I've written about previously. So all of those are the personal leadership curriculum, but it really helps to have the new, new business model that's organized around consciousness, compassion, and creativity rather than fear uh, and greed and anxiety. That's lovely. And if you think about an organization as a system, which of course it is of leaders, individuals, etc., do you see, or from your, your conversations with organizations, that the consciousness level of individuals is also waking up? Because we can't rely on the leaders either, can we? in themselves to right. max change. Well, it's just, it's just so curious to look around because there's plenty of people who seem stupider than ever before. <laughs> I mean, just shockingly, shockingly, <laughs> moronically clueless and, you know, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. And, and there's a, a pandemic of stunning superficiality and stupidity so god has just say that that's obviously the case and yes there are also you know when i so 40 years ago i was invited to uh, co-lead this seminar for a group of uh, senior leaders of a, a, a global technology company and i taught them meditation and they had no idea what it was They'd never heard of it. I had to explain it very carefully. I made it so it, was, it didn't seem weird, and they loved it. Uh, uh, but it was unusual. Now, you know, pretty much every big company has a mindfulness program and meditation, and they're giving you a headset that has an app that has a thing that you can measure your brain waves and all this. So, yeah. There's a lot of people waking up. There's a lot of people understanding that we're at a, a, a critical point in, in human uh, evolution and awakening. So yeah, there's, there's lots, of, lots of people paying attention. And the, the, key, is, the key is to lead with a, with a, with a positive vision to create an inclusive, positive vision. It's part of what, part of you know, where I think that the healing organization can be so powerful is it's a unifying message for people on the left and the right. You know, people on the right, unfortunately, tend to be proponents of unfettered capitalism, no regulation of any kind, just go crazy. You know, the market will regulate itself, the invisible hand, the wealth of nations, uh, except those people did not read Adam Smith's other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, which explains how all of that uh, free market wealth of nations has to take place within a, a commitment to the greater good and the welfare of society. But on the other side, people on the left say, well, they throw out, you know, the proverbial baby with the bathwater. They say, well, because there's so many evil, exploitive, greedy businesses who are ruining the environment, ruining people's lives and sucking the life out of society, that means business must be bad. And so let's regulate everything. Let's hand it over to the government. Let's be socialists. And this is proven not to work. 
you know, this is proven over and over again in experience not to work. It's a disaster. Uh, but what if, instead of trying to regulate, and here's the deal, this is what our book says, we're, we're not in favor of regulating companies. We're not in favor of having government impose the principles of a healing organization on businesses. No, there's a voluntary movement. We're, we're appealing to your conscience. We're appealing to the idea that there's, there's a better way. And that's what we do in part one of the book. We take you through the whole evolution of capitalism, how it got this way, how it got out of balance, how it's not really meant to be the way we see it acting out in so many uh, I mean, you know, Deutsche Bank laid off 18,000 people today. And there's a reason that that happened. And it's because of practices that they've been up to in, in recent years that aren't part of a higher vision and a purpose and alleviating suffering. <laughs> right? So, so we're seeing this all, all play out. Uh, but between rapacious, unfettered capitalism and government regulation and, and, and socialism, both of which are disastrous, both of which cause huge suffering. Uh, what if we integrated the wealth of nations with the theory of moral sentiments? What if we really recognize that we could be more successful? Like you found out in your own organization that treating people well, uh, consistently, being honest, being ethical, being open, focusing on creating value, taking care of your people. That's a thing we discovered is that all these companies, they take care of their people first. Because when you take care of your own people, they take care of your customers. They create great relationships with your vendors and suppliers. And they, that all generates a better return for your investors. So we're looking at what are these principles, and we are calling on the conscience of uh, leaders to wake up. And what's great is we have stories in the book of people who got this, who were just going along, you know, because they, they got their MBA and they were going along doing what they, you know, maximizing shareholder value. And they woke up and realized, I'm destroying the planet. I'm ruining people's lives. This isn't good. I don't want to have that as my legacy. I want to do something better, nobler, wiser. And oh, by the way, it's better business. So again, I come back to once you get that, this, it, it's just, why would you do something else? No, I want to be miserable. I want to, I want to feel guilty. I want to, you know, that's the old model was you've scorched the earth, you ruin people's lives, you amass a ton of money. And then, so you don't go to hell, you give it away and you endow some libraries or hospitals. Old model, out of date, doesn't make sense anymore. You can now make all that money by making society better all along the way. Once you get that, I think most people wouldn't want to do anything else. And when they read our book, they're going to get it. That is so, I'm literally buzzing, Michael, as you describe this, because you're talking about real life examples, Barry Waymiller's one, my own little example. The beauty of this is like on a dime, this whole paradigm could shift. You know, like, we're, exactly we're right. All the way, yeah? we're one exactly the way. right. No, we are, we are, we are like right there. You know, my, you asked me, you know, what, what was my hopes for the book? My hope of the book is people are going to, read this and go, Whoa, oh my God, I could do this differently. Oh my God, I got to give this to my boss. I got to give this to everybody in my company. Uh, uh, I got to give this to everybody I've ever met. 
<laughs> I got to make sure that this is taught in every business school. Yeah. Uh, 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 that's, that's, that's awesome. And in terms of the barriers, again, like in your opinion from the people you speak to, or maybe even some of the correspondence you're having now as you, as you gear up for the book launch, what are the most common one or two challenges you receive around the healing organization as an idea, as a vision? Uh, it's only people who don't read. <laughs> the only thing people I can't, you know, if you don't read and you're not open to new ideas and we can't, and you, you know, they don't, they're, they're not watching this podcast. They're not, you know, so uh, there's some people who may be able to insulate themselves, but what both Raj and I are finding is uh, like you mentioned, you know, I've written 16 books. And when you're getting ready to launch a book, it's really interesting. You know, you have meetings with the marketing team and the public relations team, and you try to craft a strategy. And we're doing all that because we have to be responsible stewards. But I have, I can feel that it's all happening by itself. We had a guy call us up last week who runs a PR firm who heard about the book. He said, I'd like to donate my team's time to helping promote your book because I feel it's so important. So we're getting, you know, really volunteers, people are pre-ordering the book, they are, they are retweeting tweets, they are putting it in their newsletters, you can feel the energy and the anticipation building, it's much bigger than Raj or myself, we're honored and thrilled to be, you know, on this part of this tide, and it, so it, it has an energy and a momentum and intelligence of its own and I'm just thrilled to have you know, been uh, uh, able to you know it's like catching a wave as a surfer it just I just have to be there oh here's my surfboard oh here's this wave oh whoa <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you know something that, that there is that I can sense that wave with you as well but at the same time we should not underestimate the intention that you've shown through these 16 books no, the time is right for this. You know, what the work you're doing, Raj is doing, Barry Waymiller yep. is doing. You know, and I love something you spoke about. I think it was on the, the discussion with Barry Waymiller, actually, where you said well, um, well-being is energy. Yes. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit for my listeners? Because I think it's a really important point. Sure. Well, one of the, you know, we're talking about a shift of mindset or paradigm and so on. And, you know, the big shift that we're talking about is from – a culture of extraction to a culture of giving uh, that recognizing a higher purpose for your business is the purpose of your business and so on. So that's, that's a big paradigm shift. Uh, another shift that's taken place over the last 20 years is the shift from time management to energy management. It used to be that everybody walked around with their little binder with the time and took the time management seminar and so on. And, and you know, so seminars have pretty much disappeared. And so have those binders, because we realize that you don't really manage time, you manage energy. And, and, and I was lucky enough, uh, I, I taught for many years at the University of Virginia Graduate School of Business, the Darden School, uh, a seminar called Leading Innovation. And the professor that I co-taught with, Jim Clausen, was one of the real uh, innovators and originators of this whole notion. He wrote a book called Level 3 Leadership in which he states that leadership is about managing energy, first in yourself and then in others. So I've been fascinated by how do you manage your own energy? 
And I mean, the number one way you manage your energy is by having a higher purpose. When you have a higher purpose for what you do, you automatically have more energy. So that, that's, if you're doing something just for a paycheck, you have less energy. If you're doing something because you have to, you tend to have less energy. If you're doing something because you love it, if you're doing something because you feel it makes a difference in the world, makes a contribution, uh, helping others, then you, first of all, you have unlimited energy. But then having said that, there's all sorts of uh, uh, practices and ways of uh, optimizing the functioning of the organism so that it, it's, you experience well-being and then you have more energy and more fulfillment and more happiness. And, and we just, we know a lot more about that, about how important it is. And so, yes, I'm passionate about helping people cultivate their own well-being and the well-being of others as part of this shift of how we think about organizations and society. It, it really speaks to me because I'm, I actually burnt myself out four years ago, Michael, at work. And at the time, I thought it was the outside world. You know, that person, this person, what they said. And once you realize, actually, it's all your own thinking, and that's how what impacts your energy. So that's my experience. Yes. It's really quite freeing. Well, you know, accountability is important. Yeah? Yes. Well, I mean, the truth is circumstances do matter. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're all, you know, we're confronted with challenging circumstances that are much more stressful and much more difficult, which is why it's really good to have some kind of practice to free yourself from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune so that you can be independent, that you can be self-generating and inwardly free. But that really requires a practice. It requires cultivation. Having said that, you know, I know many, many people, I, I come across many people, I hear from them who've been through the experience that you describe, uh, where they, they overdid it, they burned out, to use the common phrase, and then they, you know, that's a great, okay, if that's a great way to wake up. <laughs> you know, it's a, yes, yeah, and like smart people say, okay, I'm paying attention now. I don't want to do that again. What do I have to change and do differently? And that's great because that gen generates tremendous energy because those kind of people, you know, create podcasts so they can help other people. <laughs> awesome. As, as we start to look to wrap up, Michael, I, I just, I want to put it out there again, just beautiful statement you, you put about, you know, talking about alleviating suffering and elevating joy. I just think, you certainly bring a lot of that joy to this podcast. So thank you, Mike. It's absolutely awesome. I just want to ask you, as we look to wrap up, what do you feel? You've spoken about energy. You've spoken about the healing organization. Are there optimal conditions for innovation and creativity? Or are there just certain types of things to be more aware of consciously that create the space for innovation and creativity? I'm just wondering what your sort of... Your sure, sure. Well, in, in previous works, I've defined what I call innovation literacy. Mm -hmm. And... Everybody wants to innovate, but most people haven't studied what are the components of the in innovation process. So part of it is creative thinking, but creativity is necessary but not sufficient for innovation. You need to be able to generate new ideas, but that's the relatively easy part. You then need to get buy-in to those ideas. You have to translate them into plans. And there are methodologies for, for doing that first by yourself and then with a group. So 
I talk about the five phases of the innovation process. The preparation where you focus on what it is you want to solve and you do your research. Generation, which is where you generate new ideas and possible solutions. Incubation, which is the big secret of getting great ideas, which is learning to let go and, and go walk in nature, keep a notebook, meditate, and be receptive. That's where great ideas happen. Right? Then evaluating the ideas and having a rational methodology for evaluating the ideas by looking at the strengths, the weaknesses, and then just what's interesting about those ideas. Right? And then at the decision-making process, which has which you know, requires a lot of guidance for people, then you haven't even innovated yet. Now you need a plan for implementation. And each of these phases requires different modalities and strengths. So you have to learn to orchestrate a team so that you have the right modalities and strengths in charge of each of these functions. Because it's one, you know, some kind of people are great at, at generating lots of ideas, but they're not so great at looking at the weaknesses of those ideas. You have to do both. Some people are great at strategizing and planning, but they're not so great as implementing. But you need all of that if you want to innovate. So I, I give my clients a whole model of all this, and then I, I, I actually guide and coach their work teams to apply all of this so they create a culture of innovation. Awesome. Well, look, before you let people know how they can get hold of you, thank you very much for that, Michael. Who or what is inspiring you the most right now? Wow, who's inspired me the most? Uh, I say I'm probably most still most inspired by Leonardo da Vinci. This is his 500-year uh, anniversary of his life. He 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 passed away on May 2nd of 1519. So we're in that 500-year anniversary celebration. I, I just came back a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to 9,000 people. Uh, 4,500 future physicians and 4,500 of their parents about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. And later this year, I'm speaking uh, for the Italian ambassador at a special gathering celebrating Leonardo's 500 years. So I, you know, I'm talking about Leonardo all the time. <laughs> and every people say, boy, you've given this speech a thousand times, you know, 5,000 times. It's the most inspiring speech. You seem so turned on. Yeah, because if you're in my audience, it might be the first time you ever heard it. So I'm rediscovering it over and over again. So I keep being inspired by, by Leonardo. He lives. He lives on. <laughs> Do you know something? But it's so powerful what you're sharing, though, because 500 years ago, and we're in 2019, and we're still seeking and learning from those lessons. Oh, yeah. They're eternal. Uh, they're maybe even more relevant now than ever before. A couple of years ago, one of Leonardo's paintings sold for $450 million. Bill Gates paid $30.8 million for 18 pages of Leonardo's notebooks. I mean, he's, Leonardo is the archetype. See, he's the global archetype of human potential. So his energy... His example is in some ways more alive than ever. And in my book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day, I really abstracted those seven steps and made them really practical so that you get the experience that Leonardo becomes your personal mentor 
in your life. So yeah, he's, he's still my personal mentor and uh, I'm his official representative on earth. <laughs> uh, it, it's so lovely because one, one of the I think it's point, point seven you mentioned is um that my Italian's going to be awful connessore is it interconnectedness and I think that's connezione connezione it just for me I think that sums up where we're at right now as we finish this conversation we are all yes. connected correct and that's why that's why we have to sh- the old paradigm of business is based on an idea that we're all separate in competition for scarce resources. The new paradigm is we're all connected and we're all in this together. And if we help each other and look out for each other, we can have abundance beyond anything the previous generations have ever experienced or even imagined. What a wonderful way to wrap up. Thank you, Michael. So when is the book out, The Healing Organization? Is there an an official launch date? September 17th, uh, but people can pre-order it. if they, uh, if people go to my website, michaelgelb.com, G-E-L-B, michaelgelb.com, and sign up for our free newsletter. We'll keep you up to date with news about the book and other offerings. And there's a link uh, uh, on the, I think it's on the resources page of michaelgelb.com. You can pre-order the book right now. Awesome. Well, my copy was ordered back in April, so I'm looking forward to it coming out. Way to go, man. Thank you. Michael, you've been a joy. I'll make sure your contact details are in the show notes and uh, let's keep in contact and good luck with the launch. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi there, Gary Turner wrapping up this awesome conversation with Michael Gelb. Just a few extra takeaways I wanted to share for me personally. One was around the, over the last 20 years, there's been a paradigm shift from time management to energy management. You don't manage your time, you manage your energy. And this makes so much sense. Just think about those times in your life, personally or professionally, where you've been in flow, where you've really loved what you're doing, and just time just expands. It just feels like, yeah, it can go quickly, but you just completely feel like time is not a challenge. Yet when you're up against it, when you're stressed, when you're anxious, all of a sudden time feels like it's constricting you. Um, I just think this is such a critical point. We manage our energy, we don't manage time. And I hope that resonates with you and I'd love to hear from you if it does. And indeed, if you challenge it, it'd also be good to hear from you. I also smiled when uh, Michael spoke about that to say that money is the purpose of business is like saying that making red blood cells is the purpose of human life. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think it's such a strong comment And again, this myopic focus on metrics and sales and outcomes and and money, whilst of course in our current paradigm, it is important. We do need money. The way it's distributed, the systems in which and how how, money is fueled. I would say that money is almost cancerous in many of our societal systems that we have at the moment. Yes, I'm very grateful to have the life that I have. But would I be equally happy for wealth to be distributed much more fairly more equally across the whole of society absolutely i would be so i do think it's a very very interesting consciousness consciousness shift that we are within and certainly going in towards um, in, in a much deeper level and i think i cannot recommend enough that all of us i have my copy on order for this healing organization i'd like to put it out there now i'd quite like to put out a reading group for you know seven or eight people maybe even more if you're interested to actually read this book and maybe we can have a live conversation over Zoom, maybe have a live chat on Twitter and actually get more people involved in the conversation around this healing organization. 
also I think was just really powerful. I speak about my own work organization, case study. A lot of Michael's work is pointing this as well, is that if we, if we totally recognize we can be more successful, if we treat people consistently, ethically, by us being open, by us being transparent and clear, by focusing on creating value, taking care of your people, you know, it's so obvious we see it day in, day out. Take care of your own people. They take care of your vendors, your suppliers. You take care of one another. You know, this is not some kumbaya sitting around um, a campfire. You know, this is just humanity. We are all connected. We are all inter interdependent. And we just all need to see that much, much more. And I love how many times Michael used the word woke up or awakening. But it's certainly my own midlife awakening a couple of years ago that's certainly fueled, fueling my energy. Uh, to, to spend more of my energy in this space. Uh, and finally, he spoke about the five phases of innovation around preparation, generation, incubation, um, evaluating decision-making, and then a plan for implementation. You know, we need to have people playing to each of those different strengths as part of the innovation process. I know for me personally, I'm very good on the preparation and generation side, not always so good on the incubation. That, that speaks a little bit to me for Otto Sharma's theory U around presencing. Um, I certainly need to do a bit more of that and then the evaluating I'm pretty good in decision making but I think for me the big area for me personally in that innovation process is certainly letting stuff go and um, yeah being present so I hope some of that resonates with you I'd really appreciate if you could share on social media this podcast if you could lead us or leave us with some feedback on the iTunes podcast app that's always appreciated it allowed this brilliant conversation to reach more people but in the meantime, thank you for listening. I really hope that this podcast has served you. I look forward to speaking with you on episode 64. So take care for now.